0: And many Welcome to the Stop and the Think podcast. Side. I'm your host, Will Dole. Thank you for listening. If you're enjoying, you can rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. Today, I have with me Scott Lapierre, who is the teaching pastor of Woodland Christian Church in Woodland, Washington. He's an author and a conference speaker. He holds an MA in biblical studies from Liberty University. And along with his wife, Katie, they have nine children and are passionate homeschooling advocates. Scott's a former school teacher and Army officer, and you can learn more about him at his website, to which there will be a link in the show notes. So welcome to the Stop and to Think podcast. Yeah,
1: thanks for having me. Well, glad to be here with you and your listeners.
0: Yeah. Uh, so maybe before we get rolling too far, could you just give us a quick background on yourself, how you came to faith, how you wound up getting called into ministry? Sure, very good. Yeah, so you said quite a few uh,
1: little details there in the bio. I wasn't raised in a Christian home. I went into the military after um college I went through ROTC so the day I graduated college I was commissioned as an officer in the army and then I got out of the military and started teaching elementary school and that's when I became a Christian my brother died of a drug overdose mm-hmm. and I was teaching with some some Christians who invited me to their church and I didn't go with any intention of being saved or born again or anything along those lines I basically thought good people go to heaven bad people go to hell and I of course I believed I was a good person like like uh, most people do. And they said that their pastor had lost his brother when he was about my age, and I should just come and talk to this gentleman. And so I was struggling. And so I went, and someone gave me a Bible because I didn't go with one. And the pastor read a verse, explained it, read a verse, explained it. And it was a really life changing moment for me. And I really didn't even get to talk to him that Sunday about my brother. And I was already looking forward to returning the following Sunday. I became a Christian soon after that continued teaching elementary school for a few years, but really found my passion for ministry increasing. I, I wanted to tell people to open their Bibles versus tell students to open their, their math books. And then God opened a door for me to go into ministry. Um, so I guess in terms of recognizing a calling, I found uh, my passion for t- studying and learning God's word and sharing it with others, teaching and preaching to be really increasing. And I thought I'd spend my whole life teaching elementary school and coaching. You know, I loved, loved doing those things. Um, And so when I found my passion for those decreasing, to me, that was kind of confirmation of God's uh, hand on my life, moving me out of public school teaching. And I I had invested a lot. You know, I got my master's in in education. I got this um, pretty difficult credential in California and was, you know, confident to walk away from those things. There was a church that hired me part time. And then the church grew and they brought me on full time. Um, and that was in California. And then in 2010, I came to Washington and have been been here since then uh,
0: as the teaching pastor Woodland Christian Church. So, yeah, Thanks. That's that's helpful. To give a little bit of background. Mm-hmm. What what do you miss most about teaching in the public
1: school? Yeah, good. You know, I really liked uh, being around students. I enjoyed the time with them in the classroom. I, I enjoy the teaching, but I get to do much of that still through pastoring as a, as a teaching pastor. And so, uh, I would say that much of what I loved about teaching elementary school, I've been able to continue doing just in a, in a different way. But what I don't have as much of is that is that interaction with the, with students that I used to have. But I got nine kids, so I have plenty
0: of kids, and our church
1: has a lot of kids. So,
0: <laughs> yeah. So we're having you on today to talk about your book, Your Marriage, God's Way. Um, Maybe you could just tell us a little bit about, I mean, just the title, like why, why would we care what God has to say about marriage? Does, I mean, does the Bible really give us that much to work with in the 21st century?
1: Yeah, that's, that's
0: a great question, Will. Uh,
1: we should care. I mean, he's the one that is the author of, of marriage. He created it. And so he knows what, what uh, marriage should look like for marriages to be healthy and and blessed and joyful. Uh, I'm definitely not a prosperity preacher by any means. So I'm not saying that, um, you know, obeying God's word regarding marriage is going to guarantee problem-free or, st- or stress-free relationships. That's inevitably... Um, conflict is going to be part of every relationship on the side of heaven. We're all we're all sinful, selfish people. But by knowing what God's word says, it allows us to navigate through those difficulties and really allows us to have uh, relationships, marriages that are healthier and happier than I believe they'd be otherwise. And so we should care what God says. I mean, he created marriage. Uh, he knows what husbands and wives should, should and shouldn't do. I'm a strong complementarian, which for any of your listeners who might be unfamiliar with that, it's not compliment like praise someone, C-O-M-P-L-I, but compliment like fit together, C-O-M-P-L-E. And I think the Bible is abundantly clear that God has created men and women differently. Uh, We have different roles and responsibilities in the church, you know, in the home and in society. And so my book really outlines those different roles and responsibilities by by unpacking what God's word says. And so I'd like to think that even if, uh, you know, someone didn't like the book for some reason, one criticism they wouldn't be able to bring is that it's unbiblical, Cause I think it's a, a strongly expositional book in terms of, of dealing with those strong marriage passages.
0: Yeah. I mean, I just, I just finished the book this morning and I definitely would say that that's true. You're dealing directly with what scripture is talking about. Uh, maybe before I get to the next question I had here, what in particular, and obviously you're, you are married, but, but what has given you a passion to, to write about this, to spend enough time to put together a book? I mean, it, I assume your conference speaking largely has to do with, with marriage mm-hmm. topics. So, so what's, what's kind of underneath that passion for marriage? Yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. Will. I didn't, I didn't set out to write a marriage book. I didn't have it on my heart. Um, what happened was I had on my heart to preach on marriage because I became a pastor and I saw hurting marriages. I saw the need to equip the saints. I mean, that's what we're called to do is mm-hmm. as pastors or elders equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And I saw that marriage was an area that needed equipping in my church. You you know, you become more familiar with uh, more kind of intimate with people and and familiar with the struggles and relationships. Once you become a pastor and, you know, people come to church and everyone's smiling and friendly, people don't walk up and say, Hey, how are you doing? You know? And then someone says, Oh, my marriage is falling apart. You know, that doesn't happen. You become a pastor and you start seeing the hurting relationships. And so I just set out to preach on marriage and it was kind of a joke a running joke that I was, it was going to be the marriage month and it ended up being like the marriage year. Cause I just kind of kept preaching on marriage and you're, you know, you're feeling out your congregation and, and sensing whether things are getting repetitive or redundant. And they seem to still be enjoying the, the topic. And I was still enjoying the studying and preparation. And my wife had been nudging me for a while to write a book, but I had, you know, 500 other things to, to do It's you know, I can work from when I get up till I go to bed and still have more, uh, more work, so my, um, you know, with an inbox that's always full, I wasn't looking forward to to trying to add on writing a book. But um, after all, Katie's encouragement, I decided I put these sermons together. And so, you know, let's just this might be an oversimplification, but let's just say pastors fall into two categories regarding their preaching. You know, some of them have very abbreviated notes with like a word or a phrase to jar their memory and others are like manuscripts like John in the vein of John MacArthur. And so I'm more of a manuscript writing out my sermons very thoroughly. I familiarize myself with my notes. So, uh, you know, over the course of the week, as i I'm polishing and refining my notes. So I'm familiar with them so I can be extemporaneous, but I do end up with a transcript that's um, you know, uh, I've really labored over it and it translates well into, you know, chapters or sections of the book. And so Katie would say, Hey, you know, these sermons, you pour your heart into them. Every one of them is like a love gift to the congregation. It'd be great if you got more mileage out of them by putting them into a book. And so then when I finished the marriage series, Katie's like, this, this should be your first book. And that's just kind of how that came about. You know, um, I, uh, every sermon is 20 to 30 hours laboring in God's word. And then almost, a a year of sermons going into this book. And so there was, a, there was hundreds or thousands of hours studying scripture behind your marriage God's way. I mean, and that's why I gave it that title, because I thought, you know, it's having a marriage God's way, because it's what he says in scripture.
0: Yeah. Now, and you don't shy away and as you work through the book from saying, I mean, obviously there are lots of positive, happy, wonderful things scripture says about marriage, but scripture also says some hard things, especially that kind of cut against the grain of, of our culture In the 21st century. Uh, In chapter four of your book, you discuss the biblical pattern of male leadership. And so what do you do with things like in the book of Judges, where we have Deborah, um, instances like that, where there is female leadership in scripture, does that cut against what you're saying? Uh, what, What do you do with those kind of passages?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a great question, Will. And pretty much in any conversation about male leadership or male headship, whether in the home or in the church, Deborah is pretty much the premier name that comes to mind. Because she didn't just occupy some sort of, um, you know, superfluous position. A judge is one of the premier, uh, they were military leaders. They were, they uh, governed the land for, you know, three and a half centuries bef- between the, um, you know, the, after Joshua, you had Moses 40 years, Joshua 25 years, and then you don't, you don't have kings for three and a half centuries. And it's those judges who ruled then. And so Jud- Deborah's name comes up. And so there's a, there's a few responses to that. First, we know that the verse, the character or verses that characterize judges, because it's repeated, is that every man did what was right in his own eyes. Uh, And one of the biggest mistakes we make as Christians in reading God's word is we take what's descriptive and make it prescriptive. And what I mean by that is we take what is described and we prescribe it or act like because because the Bible is a record of sinful people. You know, God is honest with the greatest heroes, Noah's drunkenness, David's adultery, um, you know, Samson's failures, and so uh, Peter's failures in the New Testament, the, the apostles' failures. And so just because things happen, just because God recorded them, doesn't mean that we're supposed to follow that example. And probably if there's one book in all of Scripture that you're not supposed to follow the examples frequently, it's the Book of Judges. And interestingly, I would say that Deborah is one of the greatest examples or supports of male headship because she continually tried to get Barack to lead. She did not want to take the reins herself. She said, if you're not going to lead, a woman is going to get the glory instead of you. And she found herself in this position, but continually tried to take that mantle and put it on Barak. Um, there's a verse, I think it's Isaiah three, when God judged the nation and he said, children and women are going to be your leaders. And so it was actually a discipline or punishment for them to have to have women leading them. Um I think scripture is abundantly clear, you know, that, that men were leaders. There's the patriarchs are named after men. You know, the Kings were men, the times we see Queens like Jezebel, um, there were, they were wicked Queens, typically Jezebel and Athaliah, uh, Esther was a good queen. She was submissive to, to her husband. Um, the, the, uh, apostles, the elders, the 70, when they were sent out, I mean, elders are always spoken of with male terms, he, him, husband of one wife, the deacons, Mm -hmm. the same. And so I just think if anyone wants to be intellectually honest with scripture, they have to acknowledge that pattern of male leadership. And so when I encounter that, I generally try to try to share scripture with people, let scripture speak for for itself so that if people object to something, they're not really arguing with me. They're more arguing with what God says.
0: Right. (laughs) Yeah, that, that's really helpful. I, I get concerned sometimes, when even even in kind of complementarian circles, like we almost want to apologize for what God says. And you're never going to really convince anybody to come to scripture's perspective on things by apologizing. Like we need to understand why what God says is good news. Uh, why? How, how do we awesome. fit within God's created order? Um, so what are practices, I mean, obviously part of the reaction of, Feminism and then even even today, to the idea of headship is is the fact of male abuse, and and so in scripture God lays on men a heavy, a heavy responsibility to sacrificially love their wives. Mm-hmm. I mean, Ephesians five, Paul says, "Love your wife as Christ loved the church and laid himself down for her."
1: So mm-hmm.
0: so, what are practical ways? So you, you get into this some in your book, but what are practical ways that a husband can show love to his wife and? And why I, you kind of have this emphasis in the book on making sure she actually feels loved, not just ha- having good intentions as a husband, but like, mm-hmm. what are ways that, that men can make their wife feel loved?
1: Yeah, you know, that's, that's a great question, Will. So uh, the reason I stress feelings is uh, from counseling, you know, let's say there's a, a, hus- a wife that comes in and she says, my husband doesn't love me. You know, you look at the husband, what does he say? He says, well, you know, of course, I love you. I worked hard. I came home today. How can you say how can you say that? And then, you know, you got a husband that says, I don't, you know, my wife doesn't respect me. And what does she say? She says, well, of course I respect you. And so it, if I would, I found myself so frequently encouraging people to deal not make statements about what they think that I don't want to hear a husband say, well, you know, I think I love my wife. I want a husband to be concerned with how his wife feels. So that's what's behind it. And so in counseling, I'm frequently, if a husband claims he loves his wife, my question to him is, well, how does your wife feel? Does she?" F-? And when the wife claims she respects her husband, my question is, well, how does your husband feel? Does he feel respected when you, when you do that? And so regarding what allows a wife to to feel loved, um, I'll I'll give an example. This past week, our church went to uh, family camp and we go to camp twice per year. And this is the camp where there's like, you know, tents and it's kind of roughing it. And Katie didn't want to go. And nobody wants, um, you know, Katie, my wife, Katie, at camp more than I do. But to love my wife this past week meant to allow her to stay home with our baby and for me to take the other kids and I would have loved to have had her there. It's not like I enjoyed, you know, doing these meals by myself and so forth and take, taking care of, I think I had, she was home with the smallest ones, two or three. So I had the other six, six or seven there. And, um, but that's, you know, being, being a, a husband who loves his wife, it's not being a dictator. It's not being chauvinistic or narcissistic. It's not saying, you know, being large and in charge in your home. It, it means saying, Hey, you stay home and I'll take these kids to camp. Uh, you rest, uh, nurse the baby. You're up at night with with our son, um, and you relax. And I, I hope can be more rested at home. than, so yeah, I mean, I, you can lay down the submission card and say, hey, you're coming to camp with me. But at least that's just one example, just from this past week of what it looked like for me to 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 love my wife is not to push her. And when I became when I started pastoring this church, the leadership was really good. They said, hey, we're hiring you. We're not hiring your wife. And so your wife's priority is our is your home and your children. And they they have. Um, you know, supported that throughout my years here. I I will say one thing, Will, that I've noticed through my marriage conferences uh, or my ministry with marriage, most women's complaint is not that they have to submit to their husband or that they have to recognize their husband's headship. The most common complaint I hear is my husband won't lead. I wish he was a spiritual leader. I wish he would read the Bible. There's women that are just sitting at home saying, I wish my husband would make decisions and cast vision for our family. And I wish I knew what he wanted. And I wish our family was going a direction and I felt direction for our children. And so even though there can be abuse, and it's like I told my church a few weeks ago, and I think this comes up as a theme in my sermons, that the Christian life is largely a pursuit of avoiding ditches. So frequently we're in one ditch, or, you know, or and then we swing the pendulum and find ourselves in the other ditch. And so the ditches for husbands, one of them is, um, you know, chauvinism or abuse, and the other ditch is passivity, right? And we can, and so a husband is mistreating his wife clearly when he's abusive, but he's also mistreating his wife when he's passive and doesn't provide the spiritual leadership. And, and shepherding that God desires for her. And so we're trying to, you know, kind of go down the middle of the road here where we're sacrificial for our wives. We love them. We're gentle and kind with them. Uh, but we also lead, we, we make decisions and, and bring our, our families, cast vision for our homes and help our wives and kids know the direction that we want to go.
0: I think one of the things you said there was, was key is like a direction, you know, as, as leaders in, in the home and especially as Christian men, like God's given us a direction, you know, we're supposed to be discipling our, our children and, and leading our wives, washing her in the word. And we've got a direction. And, and so often, like, yeah, you, you end up swinging from ditch to ditch because you're afraid of the ditch rather than focusing on the direction that you're actually supposed to be going. Like when you're driving down the road, if you start looking in the ditch, Either you drive into the ditch or you're like, oh, I don't want to be over there. And you swing your wheel the other way and you end up in the mm-hmm. ditch. Whereas if you're looking down the road, you stay in the road. Well uh, uh, so, uh, yeah, I, I found that helpful in your book, just mm-hmm. like that focus. Okay. What does God say? And how do we do that? How do we flesh that out? Mm-hmm. I, I wonder. So you, you guys have nine kids. Uh, I, I don't I have almost half that many. Uh, <laughs> we've got four. <laughs> That's and, a lot. <laughs> how do you feel? I don't know when you guys started having kids, like, how do you feel like having kids in the mix affects, obviously it has a huge part of your relationship is, is shepherding your children together. So I I just wonder if you could speak to that some, like how, how do you balance in in some sense balance might not be the right word, but balance your role as husband and father. And and Mm -hmm. it's sometimes almost feels like divided attention that that creates.
1: Yeah, and so you're you're asking something that sounds like a parenting question, but actually has a lot of application for marriage because children are one of the biggest, the one of the big three regarding problems. The the big three uh, for problems in marriage are usually finances, in laws, and children. Hmm. And if if I think about the marriage counseling I perform, it frequently re- deals with one of those three topics. And it can be common for one parent to elevate the children above the spouse, and so we need to make sure that you know, my kids come to me, you know, with nine kids and it's like, Hey, who do you love the most? And I always say that that's actually a pretty easy question. I love your mother the most. Mm -hmm. And so just always letting the kids know that as much as I adore them, and I hope they can tell that, you know, I, I think I have plenty of mistakes as a, as a father, but I believe my children would say that they recognize I really adore them. Um, even though that, you know, I'm impatient at times and I I'm not as gentle or as kind as I should be with them. I think they know I love them. But hopefully they know even more that I love that I love their mother because God has called me to make her the supreme relationship in my life, even above my own children. Mm-hmm. And so all that to say, uh, a lot of the Christian life isn't about isn't just saying no to, to sin. It's saying no to good things, saying no to good things to embrace. I mean, just thinking about you and your ministry and this podcast and the other things. Uh, you know, we haven't spent a lot of time talking, but I'm, I'm guessing you, you could be incredibly busy. And you have to decide to say no to many good things to do God's best. And sometimes the good things we have to say no to, we being Katie and I, uh, are our nine children. And that means, you know, when Katie and I are trying to hang out in our room, which is kind of our little place of, of respite and solitude. You know, kids knock on the door. They might have to be rebuked and say, "Hey, you need to let your mother and I talk, and you need to leave us alone. Uh, we don't get a lot of time." And we're reminding them we don't get a lot of time together. This is important for us to have a healthy relationship here. And so that means when the kids are supposed to go to bed, and you know, and they don't want to go to bed, we'll tell them, "This is this is our time alone together, and you guys need to let us rest, and you need to go to sleep." And um, so yeah, there can be a lot of things that I don't know if the kids would say it looks unloving because hopefully they see we're trying to strengthen our marriage by, you know, kind of setting them aside somewhat. Um, but they needed to, they, they'll push into everything. I mean, kids will knock on the door, they'll come and ask for stuff constantly. And so you have to be very deliberate with your spouse or else, you, you know, and this is why some people come into counseling, and they become roommates, they mm-hmm. they are consumed with their work, and all these other things, and they don't even know their spouse anymore. And sometimes kids have been a major contributing factor. And so Katie and I, Not that we do it perfectly, but I think we do try to ensure we're investing
0: as much in each other as we need to. And you wonder just how much of of that, you know, we default to letting kids seep into everything and there, there, there can be a guilt with saying no to your kids and saying, no, no, mom and I need to talk right now. We need our time. But how much of that is just like misguided by not understanding that what your children in an earthly sense, I mean, ultimately the biggest thing that they need is God to make them new by his Holy spirit and that they trust in Christ for salvation. But in an earthly sense, the biggest thing they need is a stable home, which starts with mom and dad's marriage. I mean, spiritually, sociologically, like every, every indicator is like they need mom and dad to be functioning and, and on the same team. And the even if you're saying no, in, in some sense, like you said, saying no to them, you're you're actually, this is the best yes you can give to them is to say yes to your spouse.
1: <laughs> and we'll tell them that. You you said that really well, Will. I'll tell them that. I'll say, hey, you want mommy and I to have a good relationship. You want mommy and I to have a strong, they've, they've seen us fight. They've seen us have mm-hmm. arguments, you know, and it's hurtful for them. They don't like it. And they know better than anyone else how important it is for us to have a, a good marriage. And I'll remind them of that. I say, hey, we know you want mommy and I have a strong relationship. And that, and that involves us investing in each other right now and, and saying, and, and it's a, it's a testimony to your children. They're going to grow up someday. And my sons are going to treat their wife the way they see me treat their mother. And my daughters are going to treat their husbands the way that they see Katie treating me. And so they need to see this just from a a standpoint of an example that's being set for them.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's really helpful. I, I wonder as, so I'd, I'm a pastor. So I read footnotes, uh, like, as I'm reading the, the end notes in your, your book, like what, what books have been most shaping for you as you kind of obviously scripture, uh, but as you try to form your view of life, you form your view of marriage and, and family, like what, who've, who've been big influences on you?
1: Yeah, good. So, um, I've, I've, uh, been blessed by John MacArthur's ministry. I'm listening to his podcast right now, the MacArthur uh, is it called the MacArthur, John MacArthur podcast for expository preachers? Any of your listeners that, right. um, you know, are in ministry elders doing any Bible teaching, they might check it out. It's very well done. I I've gone to the shepherds conference most of the past few years when, when it's been available. Um, I've been blessed by John's books and his commentary and, and his preaching and, uh, I, knowing God as a book by, uh, I read, by J.I. Packer early, early in my ministry. Um, I would say a commentary, solid commentaries have been the biggest asset to me hmm. because I really want to understand what God's word says. And I want to relay that to my congregation. And so it's pretty common for me to be looking at commentaries throughout the week on the verses that I'm going to be preaching on. And so I would say to really get your hand on some, on some solid commentaries. Um, some people get really deep into Greek and Hebrew, but I find that for, you know, the, most sermons, there might only be a couple words that I have to understand the Greek and Hebrew because, you know, we have good English translations. Um, I preach from the ESV. I use New King James for a lot of years. And and as, if we can get some good commentaries, we can get a good grasp of what God's word is saying to then exposit that to our congregations. And commentaries are end up being a big asset for that. And so uh, John MacArthur, I have a, uh, Warren Wiersbe, his commentaries have been a big blessing to me. I've used them Probably one of the first ones I use. Uh, I have a Thomas Nelson Study Bible, uh, Moody Bible. Com- those are full volume commentaries that have been mm-hmm. very helpful for me as well.
0: Uh, that's helpful. I really appreciate your time, Scott. I appreciated reading your book. Um, how how can listeners find out more about you? Uh, if you've got anything else you want to add before we wrap up? Uh, yeah,
1: yeah. Thanks, Will. So. Um, we talked a lot about marriage in this interview and I have a a free gift. I'd be glad to give your listeners. It's uh, it's called seven biblical insights for marriage and it's a pretty short read. Actually, it's just kind of excerpts from my marriage book, you know, to be candid, I hope if people like that, they might end up getting my marriage book, but if they don't, then I'm glad that I was able to invest a little bit in their, in their marriages. And so there's just seven insights and some discussion questions and people can get that for free from my website, Scott And I'm sure you'll put the, put the link in the, in the show notes Uh, on my website, there's also a contact page and I, I get all those messages that go straight to my inbox. If I can answer any questions, pray for people anyway, they can check that out. And my, my marriage conference messages are on my YouTube channel. And if you know, people can have a marriage conference in the privacy of their own home there, you know they can download the handouts that attendees get. And it's just like being at one of my marriage conferences. And I'm thankful for any opportunity to invest in people's marriages like that. Uh, and then all my books, they can find them on Amazon or Barnes and Noble, wherever, wherever books are sold. So yeah, thank you for having me on the show, Will. Thanks for your investment in your listeners and in God's kingdom. It's been a privilege to be here with you.
0: Yeah. Uh, like I said, it was, it was a privilege. I enjoyed reading your book. Uh, it's been the Stopping to Think podcast. I'm your host, Will Dole. Thank you again, Scott LaPierre, for joining us. And until next time, thank you for listening. Whoa. day above, a world full of truth, where folks gather around, pictures that move, their thoughts dance in place to the bohemian groove.